Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Make your next vacation an experience for the senses. Anda's hotels and resorts draw upon the sights, scents, textures, tastes, and sounds of the surrounding culture to offer distinctive, luxurious stays worldwide. Learn more at Andas.com. Romanoff. Romanoff. I'm Olga Romanov. Michael Romanov. He said he was a Romanov. You know she's a Romanov. Checking in for a Romanov. I'm a Romanov. So tired of this Romanov shit? Nicholas Romanov. I could be a Romanov. He's a Romanov too. Hello and welcome to Still Watching the Romanovs. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Blossom. We're in the home stretch of this mini series that we're doing on the Amazon series, The Romanoffs. This week, we will be discussing episode six, Panorama, and speaking with episode star, Rada Mitchell. But before we get to our episode discussion and the interview, I want to get into some emails and responses that we received in the past few weeks um, that actually really helped shine a light on something I missed last week and something I definitely would have missed in this episode if, if it were not for this feedback. So, Ooh, okay. Uh, Starting with some commentary in episode five, Brighton High Circle, we got this tweet, uh, from a listener, Scott Bain, who, whose wife came up with this, uh, observation from last week's episode where she, she told him, no one seems to be picking up on the Rasputin angle in the latest Romanoffs. David, the character, the pianist played by Andrew Reynolds, insinuates himself with a mother, helps the youngest son, and is the target of extensive shady innuendo that the Tsarina decides to ignore. Um, you know, and then there's further, Further connections like the fact that the father uh, in that story, um, last week's story, like mis- distrusts David from the beginning and resists him, stuff like that, which is true of the Tsar, of Tsar Nicholas uh, and his feelings about Rasputin and all that sort of stuff. And so, like, I just completely let, like, that sailed right over my head. Um, yeah, but I, I think it's really quite plainly there uh, once it's pointed out. So um, I'm comforted by the fact that apparently a lot of people miss that connection. But like then it made me think about this episode, which is about a sickly son and a mother and all that sort of stuff like that a little differently. So, um, oh, yeah. you know, I, mm-hmm. think, yeah. I think this week's episode panorama is like maybe another take on that Rasputin, um, Zarina, Prince Alexei sort of story. Uh, you know, so that's interesting. And, and like, I, you know, I think we, we brushed up up against this, like in an earlier episode where you had mentioned something in the history of the real Romanovs that related to the modern day story, but like probably 
if I knew a bit more about the Romanovs, uh, which maybe is some research I should have done more of, uh, I would be able to sort of pluck out these connections a bit easier. But there we go. Yeah, I had just kind of forgotten the Romanovness of it, <laughs> frankly, because, yeah, you know, I think we got a little bit caught up in the Matt Weiner-ness of it. So, um, yeah. Well, I think it's it, it just it helps me realize that it's not just this idea of like, okay, someone in the, in the story is Romanov or this idea of privilege, which we've talked about and we will certainly uh, touch upon again in this episode, but, but like the idea in which um, those final days of the Romanovs or, or the, the end of the era of the Romanov is playing out like, you know, in a sort of uh, fragmented way across these modern stories is, is interesting as well to me. So you know, that, that can be a tweet. The next two things are emails. If you want to email us, still watching pod at gmail.com. We welcome your emails. Uh, this one came from Liz, uh, also about our discussion last week of Bright and High Circle. And Liz says, I love your podcast on this episode. I'm in the minority in one aspect of the interpretation of the show. I don't see Catherine, uh, that's Diane Lean's character as the audience surrogate of the final arbiter of morality. For instance, she did not do a good job of talking to her kids about the allegations. She jumped to the conclusion that the issue was sexual and passed that notion to her oldest child as if it was fact with her smallest kid she did take uh, she didn't take no as an answer pushed too hard and weirded him out more than necessary when her husband came home she let him make the decisions for her followed his lead completely uh, obviously relieved to give up responsibility so when she shut the door at the end i felt the narrative was not saying that she was making the best possible decision maybe it would have been better to keep david in their lives but keep her cautionary ear open and in that case weiner might have been exploring the situation more subtly by theorizing that while casting someone out because of an unproved allegation is unfair and unwise, turning a deaf ear to the complaint is not wise either. Proceeding with caution may be an alternative to cast out culture for people who have acted inappropriately, but not in a way that rises to Harvey Weinstein or Louis C.K. proportions. Thoughts? Question mark? And then Liz ends saying, I love Richard's take on David's code switching and the unspoken fear of gay men and the sometimes subtle fear of pedophilia. I became more sympathetic to David. Um, so I know you and I had like a you know, a, a fairly strong reaction to last week's episode. Mm-hmm. I don't n- need to like necessarily rehash it, uh, beat by beat. But what do you think of Liz's idea that the episode is maybe not coming down on the side of like, yes, never cast someone out. Um, you know, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, no, that? I think that's a, that's a, a more nuanced read certainly than, than mine initially was. And maybe I should have extended the episode, more empathy in that direction. I was so kind of caught up in the other, in like the, the gay stuff that I didn't really, I kind of was just like, ah, Matt Winder's doing this and, and assumed it sort of unnuanced. And, uh, perhaps it was more than, uh, I saw initially. So I appreciate the, that, uh, email. Yeah. I think, well, I think hoping for the, the nuance take is something like we would all want in an episode. Like, we, like, I think it's good to hope that that's what Matthew Weiner is trying to do with this episode, that he's trying to, um, you know, show multiple sides of a situation or, or show a cautionary middle ground. Um, I think it's reasonable given the metatextual aspect of the episode to come down a little harder on, on, on different side, if that makes sense. Right. Um, and then the last one, the last one is from someone who wishes to remain anonymous we actually got it a couple weeks ago and i forgot to read it um but this is the person who's like not really fond of our grappling with this subject at all 
This person writes, um, I think your episode where you explained, excuse yourself, explained again why you were covering a Weiner series is a bit too much. The longer you talked, the more convinced it became that neither of you had the experience of being in a room with someone who says something that sounds threatening and suddenly you realize just how far you are from the door and just how much stronger that person is than you are. What comes after that, oh, I was just kidding, ha ha ha, is really immaterial. Anyway, it's all okay. Just admit that you don't know what it was like for him, for her or him. You don't know what the reality situation was and you just discounted it all to go for the art. Just don't explain so much. Uh, so I want to read this because I think it's like worth voicing, um, this opinion. Uh, even though I don't necessarily agree with every way in which we're characterizing this email, um, I will readily admit that I don't have personal experience with this, um, which would certainly flavor, um, my response differently. And, um, I definitely don't know what it was like for, um, the woman who accused Matthew Weiner at all. Of course I don't. Um, I don't know the reality of what happened. That's also true. I don't know, discounted all to go for the art. I think what Richard and I are trying to do, um, if you want to, if you're inclined to give us the benefit of the doubt is to act actively grapple with this. Um, this is an unusual thing for us. This is not something we usually encounter when, when, when we do a long form analysis of a show. Um, but it's something that I think we are both trying to come to from like both emotional, intellectually honest place. So, um, Richard, it, let me know if you have any other reactions. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate where they're coming from, but I think they also should not assume things about you or me. Frank, oh, that's right. all I'll say about that. Fair Fair enough. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So, you know, if you have uh, reactions to this broader conversation or this specific episode, Panorama, and want to email us, stillwashingpod at gmail.com, uh, we'll happily read out your email. I, I love hearing back from people. It really helps me better process um, what I've just seen. Uh, so we are going to talk about Panorama, which is an episode set in Mexico City, directed by Matthew Weiner, of course, written by, I believe, exclusively Matthew Weiner this time, starring... Juan Pablo Castaneda as a journalist named Abel, uh, Rada Mitchell as Victoria Hayward, Griffin Dunn as uh, the editor, Frank Sheffield, and David Sutcliffe as Victoria's husband, Philip Hayward. And um, this is, you know, the, the central story of this is a journalist has gone undercover, a potentially a very bad journalist, has gone undercover to try to expose this medical facility that promises sort of miraculous recovery if you have enough money to pay for it. Um and he's gone there to expose it because he believes that like this, this facility is just full of charlatans and making false promises. Um, he meets Victoria and her son and he becomes sort of like interested in them. Um, he has lied and said he's a patient and that he's sick. And so he winds up lying to them for a while while showing them around Mexico city. They're American. He's Mexican. And, um, and then in the end sort of confesses, uh, to the son and to the mother, one of whom knew, one of whom didn't. And then the father comes down to sort of, um, sort everything out. So if you want to draw our Romanov comparisons, um, Alexei, the Tsarina son, um, was very sickly. This is why, uh, and it was kept a secret. This is why Rasputin was sort of able to insinuate himself into the family to make promises to Alexandra and, um, about helping, um, the Alexei. And so this idea that she got swept up in this notion of, of a cure 
for something that there was not necessarily a cure for, um, is, is one connection. And then this other is just the same thing that we've been talking about where like this journalist is, you know, obviously not very well off as not as few of us journalists are. And, um, you know, a lot of this is class driven, his examination of like, well, if this place can help people, which it can't, he thinks, but if it can, it's only obviously the extremely like disgustingly wealthy who can afford it. Uh, you know, so what, what does that even have to say about anything? So, um, like I, the literally the Rasputin, all of that connection did not occur to me until earlier this morning, but <laughs> Richard, how does that sit with you in terms of helping orient this episode in this larger story? Well, I think that if you if you look at it in, through that lens, and then also in relation to last week, this presents a more I don't know, not ho- hopeful. I guess is maybe the word like version of that. A sort of you know because I think the I think the crux moment of this episode is the confrontation that the that uh, Abel has with the doctor. Right. You know where the doctor quote unquote diagnoses him with sort of. A lack of, no, I don't want to say faith exactly, but basically he's saying that you tear things down and I'm like trying to make things and then like change things. And, um, you know, I think if you look at any sort of mystic faith healer, whatever, however you want to kind of allegorize that, um, from a position of, well, at least they're sort of trying something. Uh, I think that the episode then takes on an interesting political dimension. I don't know if this was necessarily, it's probably the time doesn't sync up, but you know, a new president of Mexico was elected um, this summer. This guy, Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador, um, who there's a great New Yorker profile of him from uh, this past summer, if you want to read it, um, where he's this kind of far leftist revolutionary, you know, people are concerned about his kind of his populist stuff and his nationalism. But I think that by the end of the episode with this Diego Rivera mural coming to life and that, that sense of like, forward motion while also looking to the past i feel like there's um some kind of call for p- political optimism maybe i don't know did you i saw this as a very political episode i mean it's certainly like very much about mexican identity and um the revolutionary spirit um the nationalism in hopefully the good kind of way and if this is a if this is an episode that's reactionary in a political way i don't think it's to that mexican election i would suspect it's to our own election and like the way in which mexico has been vilified i think the timing aligns a bit better yeah. with that in terms of like this is like a repudiation of trump's uh you know willingness to characterize all of mexico as you know rapists and villains and a threat and this is like a celebration of the history of mexico and mexican identity and i mean it's interesting that you have um the able character is like pretty much the only well, other than the doctor, right? Like pretty much the only Mexican character in the story because he's dealing with an American family. His editor is American. Um, and so it's just up to this one figure in the guise of like a, a tour guide showing this family around Mexico City um, to really anchor us in Mexican pride. And, you know, and like I think what does come through, you know, at times I, I cock a skeptical eyebrow at the budget of um the Romanovs. But then when I see that, like, you know, this is obviously filmed like on the Zocalo in Mexico city, like that really, I think comes, comes through in a way that, that feels like, I don't know how I feel about the mural coming to life at the end. I honestly don't know. It's a very big swing and a very like surreal 
brave thing to do. I don't know if it landed well with me, but some of the, a lot of the earlier stuff, uh, really did. Did it so. make you want to sing Sunday in the Park with George? <laughs> uh, yeah, bit by bit, let's put the episode together and, um, finishing the hat. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing about the possible Trump connection, and I think you're right that it's there and the timing certainly syncs up better. Um, though certainly this guy had been running for a while, but, um, in, in Mexico. Right. Um, but, and that may be true, but I think if that is kind of the intent, well, but Weiner is also at least gesturing towards some political ailment in Mexico, you know, and, and all this metaphor of, you know, being sick and getting better. And, you know, is it possible to dream, you know, of a better, you know, body, um, you know, whether that's civic or, uh, personal, um, you know, what I, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I don't know how, you know, what the extent of Matt Weiner's, um, knowledge of Mexican politics is, um, certainly could uh, likely better than mine. Um, but it's interesting to consider that he might be doing a metaphorical gesture toward America, but decides to ground it, you know, to our South. And, um, I don't know. I wonder how successfully, you know, I think, it, you know, he also gets into yeah. r- issues of race in Mexico between indigenous people and, um, you know, I guess they would call white Mexicans, um, uh, and, you know, I don't know. Does it handle it clumsily? I thought it was. I think that they, the episode was wise to only sort of touch on it. That's an interesting thing that I think a lot of, well, I don't know. I don't want to speak for anyone, but like, uh, you know, I lived in Mexico for a little while, like very short while in high school. And, um, I lived with a family where the mom, the mom's side of the family was from Spain and, um, like, you know, so she was like quite pale and then the father was, uh, you know, his side was indigenous and he was very, very dark. And like, that was my first introduction to this kind of like skin based, uh, racism in Mexico. And I didn't know, you know, they like had to explain to me and I didn't know I was like 16 or whatever. Um, but I think it's not something like, you know, we, we paint Mexico with this, like not we, but like those who have no exposure to it, in America might just paint it with one brush. And it's like, you know, at least worthwhile to talk about the fact that it has its own internal, uh, fractures, because of course it does, because any nation with any kind of identity would, you know, mm-hmm. um, it has its own segregations and racisms and presumptions and all of that. But I think the issue comes when, um, when you have someone who's not Mexican as Matthew Weiner is not, I think if this episode were presented from the point of view of the outsider, uh, it would be more successful for me. But since it, you know, since this able character is the narrator of the story, like the episode starts with him, like, you know, almost reciting poetry. It's not poetry. It's quasi poetry. It's his Tinder poetry. You know, it's like you're inside him throughout the whole thing. And, and Rada Mitchell's character is, is a satellite to his story. And so, because it's this inside, let me show you what Mexico City or Mexico really is, then I, I, you know, feel slightly squeamish when that comes from like a non-Mexican person. If that makes sense. Right. I mean, I, I do that. That's all true. But I also think it's an interesting inversion of the kind of like, you know, exoticism travel movie. Uh, sure, the the pray love right where of, the white yeah. the white heroine or hero shows up in a strange land and you know the the colorful locals teach them something about love or whatever you know like I think that to to ground it in in a, in a Mexican story like is interesting whether or not Wiener really successfully does that like I don't know but um it's uh 
yeah, it had a sort of weird shape to it because of that, because I was so used to, you know, I saw that Rada Mitchell was in the episode. I saw that we were in Mexico and I was like, oh, okay, so she'll show up and then it'll, it'll be her story. And then it certainly wasn't. So, um, I think it, it, you know, from a sort of tropey semiotic level, like that was an interesting thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. Um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, Juan Pablo Castaneda, who I found like a very mesmerizing person to watch. She hasn't, I, as I like never watched Sense8, um, and he, he's done mostly like a lot of modeling and then uh, some, some things. So I've never seen him in anything is the point. And so I was, I was quite captivated by his performance, but honestly, I genuinely can't tell you if that's just because he's like incredible to look at or if he's like genuinely a very incredible performer. And it's also like not a cheat, but it's also like, uh, it's always a help to an actor when you get their internal monologue, you know? Right. So like that's doing a lot of the heavy lifting for you, but like, you know, the, the other players in this episode were people that I, you know, recognize, Oh, there's Christopher from Gilmore girls. Like, sure. But like, this is, this is a person that like, it's such a, a big thing to put on his shoulders, carry this episode. And it's not, and he's not someone, um, you know, who is immediately familiar to the audience. And maybe that in and of itself is its um, own advantage. But well, what did you think of his performance and his placement in the episode? Um, I mean, you're right. He looks great. Uh, I have to say, I thought he was pretty bad. Um, okay. I, I, I agree that he like held the camera well and just because he's still looking, but like he has like presence, you know, but I yeah. thought that some of his delivery was a bit flat, you know, um, I think his narration is almost more successful than his like line. Delivery. Yeah, no, I agree. And, Cause I think that like it, he could get into the sort of dreamy tone of it, but then when he had yeah. to be conversational, it didn't quite work as well. But, um, yeah. you know, I thought it was interesting to cast an actor, um, who I think most people in the States are unfamiliar with. I mean, there are a lot of, um, you know, Mexican actors who, uh, you know, I'm sure would jump at the chance to do a Matt Weiner thing, uh, or do something at such a big budget, um, that he could have reached out to. So I don't know. I'm, I'd, I'd be curious to hear like what the decision making was behind that. I mean, I think he's certainly interesting. I would watch him in something else, but, um, I don't know if he quite fit the tone of the, of this piece, uh, when he wasn't monologuing. And similarly, like I'm, I'm trying to figure out if like, in what ways or why I had trouble, some trouble accessing Rada Mitchell's performance in certain uh, moments because I, she's a, she's a performer I've always really, really enjoyed. Um, and so I'm trying to like, maybe it was just like the, the episode itself, the pacing of it felt inaccessible to me. I, I know you, I know you weren't like the hugest fan of Diane Lane or performance in last week's episode. Um, this, that, that was my experience with this episode. Like, if these are two Zarinas, like, this was a Zarina that I was having more trouble getting into. Um, what did you think of Rada Mitchell here? I mean, I agree that I like her. I think that it's, it's less her fault and more that, like, we've sat, seen a lot of these kind of sad, rich ladies in hotels, you know, and granted, she had something or something's plural to be genuinely sad about. Um, and I don't think that Rod, that Mitchell was unconvincing in it, but like, there just, there was nothing really, there was no there there. I guess when he said that he was in love with her so soon, uh, I was like, huh, um, I don't really get why necessarily, but, um, you know, and I think also that the, the kind of speaking of tropes, like having the, you know, guy come and, you know, teach the, I mean, essentially single mother, like how to 
live, you know, and, and, and knows what the kid wants to do more than the scolding mom does. I think that's a little mm. bit tired, you know, um, yeah. granted she had a reason to be so concerned about her kid and to be protective and, and restrictive of his life, but a very good one. But, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't that sometimes rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, and then, you know, just to, just to wrap up, uh, our discussion of the episode like what did you make overall of um i don't know maybe like the healthcare angle or, or like or or this this sickness thread through the episode like i know you talked a little bit about how it could be like a political sickness um we talked about sort of spirituality and 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 belief and all that sort of stuff but what what other advantages or disadvantages are there in setting this episode around like a, a lord's sort of uh environment well i mean it's funny i don't uh, this it's not directly related to that but i was watching that what I, you know what i sort of called the pivotal scene between the doctor and abel um and i my brain is broken to the extent that like i'm like wait so what's the matt weiner in this is this like uh you know is is able the bad journalist critic who like can't, doesn't understand where Matt Weiner's coming from that he's just trying to like, and yeah, he might mistake, make mistakes here and there or, or think, you know, harm might befall people, but, but it's all in the name of the greater good, you know, and Abel is the one just trying to tear it down. <laughs> so I kind of got stuck on that idea for a while. I don't think it's really there. Um, mm-hmm. but like, I just tend to think that anytime a sort of autory person like this, um, addresses, a journalist in their work, um, be it in this or in Birdman or, you know, anything else. I'm, I'm always a little suspicious of that. Um, perhaps unfairly. Yeah. I mean, I, I know I think that's true. Like our, we're, we're trained to have our hackles raised anytime there's a journalist character. And that's why I said like maybe a terrible journalist, which is like, it's something his editor says. And I don't yeah. think, I don't know that it's an indictment of like journalism as a whole when like, I think the Griffin Dunn character is supposed to be a good editor uh, in theory, you know what I mean? And he's just like, but you're just not a good journalist and that's okay. Like it doesn't mean all journalism is bad. It means like, maybe this is not for you. Um, but maybe you should be a Tinder poet instead. But, um, the, yeah, that, that, that is interesting. I hadn't thought of that as like a sort of, uh, veiled swing at our profession, but I, you know, I think, I think, I don't think in this regard, he's representing all of journalism, but I could be wrong. Yeah. All right. Well, um, is there anything else you want to say about this episode? Um, it made me really want to go to Mexico city. I've never been, um, it's, and I know it's been kind of, a lot of people have been going there recently. I just, for whatever reason, maybe the, it's just cause the Instagram is so good. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a nice, I, you know, I liked the movie. I liked this episodes, you know, sort of more graceful. I liked them going, um, you know, to the archeological site and looking out and I, I liked, I, I mean, the ending corny as it might have been a little on the nose while also assuming a lot, um, I think it was effective because I didn't expect it. I like, you know, I think I said this back in the first episode. I like the show getting a little bit magical realism-y, you know, I think, I think it's kind of fun. And then the third episode obviously is much more, but, um, you know, I appreciate that he was like, yeah, I can, I can do this. I have the budget. I have the location. Let's just go for it. Yeah, you're right. I think, I think these bigger swings are, are interesting. And if anyone like is going to try to do it, it's going to be Matthew Weiner. And so it's like, I do, I like it. It's like how I feel about mother. The Aronofsky film is like, mother's not necessarily for me, but I'm really glad it exists. And I'm glad that like Hollywood is not so broken to the point that like an Aronofsky can't say, I'm going to make this like very challenging slash alienating film. And like, someone's like, okay, go ahead and try. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. I, I think, 
I wish more artists were given that opportunity, but I'm glad that certain artists, when they reach a certain level, they don't just like sit there comfortably and make like paycheck movies. Like some of them continue to be like, yeah, I'm going to take the swing and, and that, you know, because I'm in a privileged position and I can do so. And that's, um, you know, I think that's always worth doing. Yeah. Always worth taking the swing. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork. And this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. At Andes Hotels and Resorts, travel means taking in your destination's every sight, smell, taste, touch, and sound from London to Maui, Napa Valley, Tokyo, and New York City. Andes Hotels and Resorts draw on the unique, authentic senses of locales around the globe to dissolve the barrier between your destination and your luxury hotel experience. Visit Andes.com to learn more. All right, well, let us go to our conversation with Rada Mitchell. Prada Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us. One of the great surprises of your episode is the fact that it's set in Mexico City and has so much to do with Mexican identity. How important did it feel for you to be on location filming this episode? Uh, well, I mean, it kind of feels like it's a love letter to the city in a way, and kind of, as you said, an exploration of, of the identity of the city. Um, and I think it was also, it was very, in a way, political, but very poetic, um, and I think in order to kind of create that sort of that headspace, it was great because we started the first day on the pyramids. So we immediately had this sense of history and this sort of mystical kind of feeling that, I don't know, created this contemplative kind of sense of sort of magic. Um, and that was, I guess, the conceit of Matthew. He knew that we should start at the end. Um, and so that's how we began and uh, I think put us all in the right frame of mind. That's so interesting because that's such a moment of catharsis for your character. What is it like to move backwards from such, you know, such a pivotal moment? Well, it's kind of weird to meet the person on, at the end. Like, that's how kind of me and Juan Pablo kind of met there. Uh, we met at the read and then we kind of started at the end. Um, but I think we were all pretty clear about the story and what it what it meant. So to begin at the end was fine. And I think Matthew's very precise also in the way that he... Um, kind of directs and conceives of the story. So it was all already in his head. And uh, we kind of were sort of up for the challenge of trying to bring it out into the world. But he, 
it was sort of clear what we were doing, very clear to him. And I think by putting us there, it was very clear to us, like, hey, how these people are going to feel, because you just feel that way in the space. And, you know, you say you, you feel like it's very clear to you what the story is about. So I, I, would, I would love to hear your your interpretation of what, <laughs> <laughs> what uh, not that I don't understand it. Of course I understand. But, like, what what is your interpretation of what this story is about? Well, I mean, I can understand why you ask, because it, it is a fairly nuanced episode, and it sort of pivots around having an emotional resonance, and you see these two characters uh, shift in their perspective. So it's a kind of a personal uh, a journey for both of them um, and how you kind of you see how two human beings can affect each other in, in just sort of the way that they see each other. I think two people in the story see each other um, um, outside of, of the history, outside of anything else and outside of their own personal dilemmas. And in being viewed, I think they change each other or they at least see things differently. Certainly my character... Um, sees her situation very differently in the end of the episode um, than she does in the beginning of the episode when we meet her. And she's kind of, nothing really has changed for her. She's still got this situation where her child is, you know, unfairly um, going to die. And how do you, how does a mother kind of cope with that, knowing that you want to fight against it? Um, so by the end, I think it's not like she's given up fighting, but she's decided she's had a shift inside of her where she's able to um, um, be at peace with the reality of, of things. And it's interesting to frame that kind of um, shift in perspective within the perspective of the history of the city, which the story keeps referencing, um, you know, this kind of class and cultural um, schism that exists in Mexico City and how the culture itself is trying to kind of come to peace with the history of things and, and the reality of, of how we all are where we are. So it sort of operates on two levels. Your character has this sort of almost love affair with Juan Pablo's character, but it stops, you know, just short of, of quite going there. Yeah. And I'm wondering what you think the significance is of it being sort of an almost love story, but not quite a love story. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's something kind of idealized about a platonic love, right? Because it's sort of pure. It's not even a sensorial thing. It's like a soul kind of connection. Um, and also something kind of alluring about the thing that you can't have or that you don't take, that you just imagine. Um, so, yeah, it kind of it's sort of a subliminal love affair. I think, that, and I just I found that quite subtle and like interesting and like hard, ambitious to try and capture that, um, you know, in the amount of time that we had to try and create that feeling, I guess. Then, in your mind, how do you relate your character's journey, which is a personal one of sort of getting beyond these fears, and also the very political, you know, centered on Mexico narrative of this episode? How does all of that relate back to the larger? theme of the Romanoffs and the Romanoff story? Well, I'm not privy to all of the other episodes, but just the kind of conceit of the story. We're looking at a bloodline. We're looking at this kind of privileged bloodline. We all have this idea about um, what it is to have, you know, the best and know the best and be part of whatever is sort of the top of the pyramid. Um, and and then how is how does that how do you reconcile that with 
people that are at the bottom of the pyramid and what's just about about any of this um, and where's the humanity in this kind of crazy story that we're all part of. Um, so I think it's sort of looking at people just being present in the moment without these stories around status and history and just like in the exchange that they're in and then it all kind of becomes somewhat irrelevant. Um, that's sort of, I think, what we're looking at in, in this episode. But in other episodes, I guess, you know, you get to kind of play with schadenfreude and like what is it when these, I was going to say a rude word, um, what is it when these people lose everything that they have? Um, that's cool too, like they don't deserve it. Um, uh, it sort of plays with a lot of stuff that's embedded in our psychology about status and where we belong and what we should have and what is equal. And but it's funny in all these episodes, which have explored these various Romanoffs around the world and their various iterations. Um, this thing that keeps this theme that keeps cropping back up over and over again is this idea of exceptionalism. It's like if you have this secret lineage, that means you're more important um, somehow than people around you. But your character, you know, from the very beginning, she's you know deferential to working class people around her and all this, you know, she's very, she's very kind. She's not, she doesn't presume, um, you know, privilege. And so I'm wondering why you think your character, your Romanoff character doesn't fall into that trap. <laughs> um, I just think she's somebody who's living for, for somebody else, maybe not through them, but for them. Uh, so there's automatically some kind of sacrifice in that. Um, and so it's not an ego driven kind of situation, but she does have access to, you know, all kinds of privileges that other people don't have, I guess. But even in this case, we were like trying to figure out, is she a Romanoff or is she just thinks she is? I think, you know, she is. Well, I mean, that was sort of like open-ended even in the conversation where we were sort of figuring out who this character is. Um, so yeah, what what was the question? Why is she not entitled? Yeah, because I think, yeah, primarily because her, her sense of purpose is very clear. Um, so whatever she has, she's using to kind of facilitate this goal of, you know, saving somebody's life. Um, that's primarily what her agenda is. And also, I think, I think even, even in, I, I was thinking, you know, she's probably, you know, related to the lineage, but doesn't come with a bunch of cash. I think she kind of married into that in a different kind of a way. Um, so... Yeah, she kind of had her own kind of journey to be in the position that she's in economically. <laughs> One of my favorite things that I've heard about this series is this idea that that uh, Matt Weiner not only had like specific rules that he laid out for the series, but he actually had them written down. Uh, you know, he he told one of our writers at Vanity Fair that it, his some of his rules were like resolving stories, banishing coincidence, avoiding pretension. Are these anything that that like were these things that were? I'm guessing by your laugh, these are things that weren't like directly addressed on set. He wasn't ever like stop. This is too pretentious. Let's avoid it. Like, uh, are these, were these spoken rules? Well, I'm thinking of it as a lifestyle. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I mean, it's <laughs> like a, as a new rule. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, in terms of, I mean, I think in terms of like, I think in this case, he was, he wasn't, um, afraid to like be like, okay, I'm going to like expose myself a little bit here and I'm going to be a bit whimsical and I'm going to put in some magic realism, you know, and all of that could be interpreted as pretentious, but, to me, it's kind of a 
uh, a little brave. Um, and it is good to like slow down. I, I like that. And I like things that are not, you know, plot driven necessarily, but are kind of based on the risk of nuance. Like let's hope this kind of works out, you know? Um, so to me that that's kind of bold. Um, and I'm not worried about being pretentious. And, um, what is it about Matt's, you know, previous work or his approach to the work um, that made you want to work on this project? Well, honestly, I read this. I didn't know who had written it. I just read it and thought, wow, this is really cool. It's so topical in terms of like modern medicine and like wh- what the future there is, you know, it's certainly in the zeitgeist and what people are curious about, um, you know, you know, can we live forever as well? It'd be great. Um, and, and there are, you know, having sort of done a bit of research on this, there are hospitals and there are places you can go and some of them are in Mexico and you can get yourself shut up with stem cells and you can hope for the best. So that kind of was fascinating to me. And then, um, I found this kind of intriguing, this whole kind of concept of royalty and, and the resonance of that. And I have no, I do know some people that are from kind of, royal families that have been ousted and, you know, no longer royal. And that's just so interesting. Um, so that was all fascinating to me. Um, and then to imbue that with this kind of poetic, platonic, romantic, um, in a way could be conceived of as vague story, um, was like, wow, a real challenging, unique, original piece. And and then when I found out it was Matthew and that it was for television, it seemed to be like a very unique proposition. Yeah. When I read it, I thought it was an independent film. I was like, oh, this is a really cool film. And then they're like, no, it's a television film. So, yeah, it was just surprising. I think people will enjoy that it's very cinematic, you know, in this sort of television space. And Matthew, you know, has a reputation for kind of reframing how television can be. Um, and I think he's sort of you know, adding now to that conversation that, you know, it can be cinematic and it can, each story can have its own identity and um, it could be different to what we've seen so far. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Great talking to you. You too. Thanks so much. Bye. That's it for us this week. We will be back next week with episode seven, end of the line with the great Catherine Hahn and Madman alum J.R. Ferguson and an interview with Annette Mahendra, who uh, many of you Americans fans will recognize as like, I think the first actual person of Russian heritage, uh, at least that I talked to for this episode. So um, things get quite Russian next week on the Romanoffs. Richard, until then, where can people find you? Um, in Mexico City on Tinder, trying to find that guy. <laughs> I mean, his settings are probably uh, not set to mine, but, you know, we, we, one can dream. Um, and I'll occasionally, you know, get out of Tinder and go check VF.com, and make sure my stuff is still running, and check myself on Rylas at Twitter. How about yourself, Joanna? Uh, you can find me on Vanity Fair. You can also find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. But most of all, you can find me elaborately braiding my hair so I too can reenact a Diego Rivera mural in my own living room. <laughs> Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Bye. Never mind. I'm Olga Romanov. Michael Romanov. He said he was a Romanov. You know, she's a Romanov. Checking in for a Romanov. I'm a Romanov. Is he tired of this Romanov shit? Nicholas Romanov. I could be a Romanov. He's a Romanov too. 
Andes Hotels and Resorts blur the line between luxury hotel and locale, immersing you in your destination in every sense, from the dynamic energy of Wall Street to the pristine natural beauty of Costa Rica. Discover more at Andaz.com. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. From PR.